Thank you, Davis. Good morning. My name is Nick Swan. I'm the associate pastor here at Grace. Welcome to all of you who are joining us online. Uh, this morning we are continuing our series on the book of Romans. And by way of reminder, Marshall has asked us to read along uh, with him as he is preaching through this series. And there is a reading plan that's listed for you there on page 8 of your bulletin. I've been doing this the last couple of weeks, and it really does help as you prepare your heart to hear God's word preached. And also as you read through the full scope of the book, it helps to keep the big picture in mind as we slow down and take chunk by chunk preaching through uh, the book of Romans. Uh, the title of our message this morning is Amazing Grace, the Bad News. So I have the bad news this morning. Marshall has the good news next week. He conveniently left town as I preach the bad news, and then he's going to come back with all the hope of the gospel. As you can tell, uh, it's a pretty heavy passage, but I trust that as I preach through this and God's Spirit is at work, that we will be able to see more clearly our own sinfulness, not for the sake of wallowing in it, but that we might see our sinfulness so that Christ our Savior might be exalted all the more. Uh, before we dive in, let me pray for us. Father, as we cover the bad news of our sin and your judgment against our sin, I ask that your spirit is present. May your spirit both convict us and draw us to Christ. May we respond to the difficult news of our sinfulness by running towards you and the forgiveness that you offer rather than running away and hiding in our shame and in our guilt. For as bad as the bad news is, the good news of what Christ has done for us swallows up all of our sin and your goodness, your forgiveness, your love, and your mercy. Father, convict us this morning and then pour out your mercy on our convicted hearts. I ask these things in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen. All of us, if we have not already done so, will one day sit across from a doctor and receive either bad news about our health or the health of someone that we love. As painful as this moment is, it's a, it's a necessary moment. It's a moment we dread, but at the same time, it's a moment that we need to hear, that we need to process and to understand. And this is the case, because if we are going to get better... We must first understand what ails us. If we are to have the remedy, we must acknowledge and understand that we ourselves are sick. And this is true not just of our physical wellness, but also of our spiritual wellness. Jesus in Mark chapter 2 says it this way. And as he, Jesus, reclined at a table in his house, there were many tax collectors and sinners who were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said this to Jesus' disciples. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The fatal flaw of the scribes, and I mean that word literally, fatal is their failure to see and acknowledge their own need of spiritual healing. Rather than recognizing their sickness, they were trusting in their own righteousness. Rather than recognizing their own sickness, they were looking down upon those around them that they viewed as sinners. And as a result, they cut themselves off from the remedy that Christ was offering to all those who were willing to acknowledge their need of him and of his healing. 
If we are to be healed by the great physician, Jesus Christ, our Savior, we must first acknowledge that we are sick and that we are in need of his healing touch. Our passage this morning gives us bad news. It sits us down in the doctor's office where God is going to speak to us about our condition. We are spiritually sick with sin. In fact, apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead without hope and subject to the wrath and curse of God against whom we have each sinned. If we are to truly understand the glories of the salvation offered to us in Jesus Christ... We must first come to terms with the misery and the death that Jesus has saved us from. As hard as hearing the details of our sickness may be, the good news is this. Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Jesus came not to call the righteous but sinners. Acknowledging our sickness does not lead to despair. It leads to hope because in acknowledging that sickness we then avail ourselves of the remedy ...that Christ offers us. Main point for this morning is this. We must first understand our sin and God's judgment against our sin... ...if we are to understand how amazing the grace of God truly is. We must first understand our sin and God's judgment against our sin... ...if we are to understand how amazing the grace of God truly is. So let's begin with God's wrath against our sin. Point number one, God's wrath against our sin... Look with me at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I'd venture to say that the wrath of God is not something that many of us ponder with much regularity. You don't sit there and think, hey, I'm going to go out on a date night or hang out with some of the guys. And what I'm going to bring up is, hey, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the wrath of God against my sin. Let's talk about that for a little bit. None of us do that. What do we do? When we think about the wrath of God, we tend to avoid it. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. But Paul, who's embarking on this grand exposition of the gospel, he starts with the wrath of God. And he does so because in order for us to understand how the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, we must first answer the question, from what must we be saved? Why do we need a salvation from Christ at all? Verse 18 gives us the answer. We must be saved from the wrath of God. Now I'm defining wrath as God's anger against mankind due to our sin. As the creator and ruler of all things, God in his holiness must hold us, his creatures, accountable. So that when we sin against him in his holiness, he must judge us via, through his wrath. So what is it that God's angry about? Answer, all of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Ungodliness is an attitude towards God that dethrones him. He is no longer the king and the ruler and the creator of all things. We take the crown off of his head and we place it on our heads. Ungodliness is obliterating God as our God and makes us the king of our lives. And unrighteousness flows out of this ungodliness... When we disregard God as our king, as our creator, as our ruler, we are then free to disregard the commands that he has given us in the scriptures. And so ungodliness leads to unrighteousness, and it becomes this suppression of the truth. God, you are not God. You don't tell me how to live my life. I live life on my own terms. 
This is what Paul is speaking of with the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And it's in response to this ungodliness and this unrighteousness that, the, that God reveals his wrath. Because God is unwilling to see that he is not God or that he is not the king. And therefore, when his creatures rebel, he judges them in his wrath. Now, verse 18 tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. But we've not yet established who is among these sinners who have sinned against God and are therefore subject to his wrath. In other words, the next question that we must ask is, are we among the sinners that God is angry with due to our sin? This brings us to point number two, the charges against us, the charges against us. So Paul, starting in 118 and running through 320, he builds this airtight case against all of humanity that we have each indeed sinned and are therefore subject to the wrath of God. Now, we're not going to be able to cover all of chapters 1 through 3. We're going to start with this section in chapter 1 that was read and then also end with chapter 3. But we're also going to touch just a bit on what Paul has to say in 2 as well. So let's begin with this first section of charges against us. Exchanging our worship of the creator in order to worship the creation. This is what Paul is arguing. Let's see this in verses 19 through 23. So Paul in these verses starts with a level of accountability that encompasses all of humanity. And he does this at all times and all places because of the general revelation of God given to, of himself in creation. So verse 19... For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So just as a beautiful piece of music or art or architecture, they, they point to the qualities of the one that has created them. So God's creation points to his invisible attributes. Namely, his eternal power and divine nature. Recently, NASA sent up the James Webb telescope into space. And this telescope, which is capable of seeing, it's mind-boggling, thousands of light years away, has sent back images that are truly breathtaking. If you haven't looked at these images, go home. Don't Google them now on your phones. But go home, Google the images from the James Webb telescope. They are breathtaking. They're beautiful. And with each technological advance, so we used to think the Hubble telescope was great. They will then juxtapose the Hubble telescope with the Webb telescope. And you can see how much the technology has advanced. With each new advance in technology, we see deeper into the universe. And rather than us knowing more and more, we realize that we actually know less and less and less. The more we see of the universe, the more we realize how little we truly know about it. The more we see of it, the smaller we become. And the more we see of this universe, we realize there is something much bigger than us that has created this universe that we are observing. And this is just one example. This is the immensity of the universe, but you could go in the opposite direction. Things that are microscopic or things that are irreducibly complex, like our eyes and our ears. All around us, creation is bearing witness to a God that has created us. In creation, God is displaying his invisible attributes only God, whose power is eternal and who is divine, could speak into existence the immense and beautiful universe in which we live. Psalm 19.1 says it this way, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. 
God in creation has revealed to all mankind throughout all of human history who he is, his eternal power and divine nature. But sadly, we see what our response is. God has been revealing himself over and over to all of humanity through all of human history. And yet, how do we respond? Look with me at verse 21. For although they knew God, he'd made himself plain. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Rather than worshiping the eternal eternally powerful and divine creator of the universe, we have chosen to worship his creation rather than him, the creator. And Paul calls this futile thinking, which it is. How many of us would look in a magnificent painting and then honor and worship the painting as though it made itself? We see the painting and we acknowledge the greatness of the artist. Who of us would look at a beautiful piece of architecture and honor the building as though the building designed itself? We honor the architect who made the beautiful building. And yet we have, what we have done in our futility is we have exchanged. We worship the painting rather than the painter. We worship the building rather than the architect. We've exchanged the glory of God our creator in order to worship his creation. Verses 24 to 32 go on to describe a downward spiral that takes place. When we make this exchange, it goes from bad to worse. In verses 21 and 22, sin has already led to futile thinking, hearts that are darkened, and the exchange of wisdom for foolishness. And then verses 24 and 25 say this, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now this phrase, God gave them up, it ought to terrify us. Paul goes on to say this phrase three times in a row, verse 24, 26, and 28. God gave them up. As terrifying as the wrath of God is to me, the thought that actually terrifies me in this passage is that God would give me up to my sin. That he would turn me over. That in a sense he would give up on me. Consider your own family. Each of us have been angry at a parent or a child or a sibling But how many times has that anger led us to disown them, to give up on them, especially when we know to give up on them would be to relegate them to their own destruction and disaster? It's almost unimaginable to us to to turn away from people that we love and to let them bear the, the, the fruit of what they have been living. It's hard for us, and yet that is what God is doing in these verses We have so rebelled against him, we've so hardened ourselves against him that God is allowing us to reap what we have sown. He allows us in our sin to actually be given over to it so that we might see just how foolish and futile our thinking is. It's a terrifying thought that God would turn us over to our sin. But then Paul goes on to show us what it looks like when God gives us over to our sin in in, in even more detail. 126, for this reason God gave them up again, the second time he says it, to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
One of the ways in which God says that he has given us up is when mankind begins to deny God's design for marriage and the sexual union between a man and a woman. When we embrace homosexuality or lesbianism, our own practice or that of our culture, which is pointed at very specifically here, what we are doing is being given over to a debased mind because we're undermining God's created order. He's made men and women to be married to one another and to be fruitful and to multiply. That is God's design. And to be given over to a debased mind is to turn that on its head, to deny it, and to live contrary to it. Paul goes on to describe other ways in which God gives us over to our sin. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, third time, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now listen to this list, and I want you to notice how, if you are in this list, and how ordinary some of these things may seem to you. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. What's striking about this list, which is a reflection of God giving us over to our sin, is just how ordinary many of them are. Consider coveting. How many of you have desired what someone else has? How many of you have then envied, which is another list, sin listed in here, what they had, you wanted it and you were jealous of them because they had it? How many of you have engaged in any sort of strife this week where you have argued with another person? How many of you have been deceitful where you've lied to someone else? How about arrogant or boastful, disobedient to parents, foolish to gossip, to slander, the list of these ordinary sins goes on. And I'm sure that, like I can find myself in here, each of us can find ourselves in this list of what we would call ordinary sins. Yet as ordinary as many of these sins may seem to us, all of them, according to Paul, are expressions of ungodliness and unrighteousness. All of them are expressions of God giving us over to our sin, to a debased Mine And God, because he is perfect in holiness, all of these, each and every one of them, are sufficient grounds for him to judge humanity. As verse 32 says, those who practice such things deserve to die. Yet, not only do we do such things, we give approval to those who practice them. Believe it or not, this is only the first prong of Paul's indictment of all of humanity. So you're probably glad that I'm not actually going to preach all of two in the beginning of chapter 3. Because he just keeps going. And what he says in this first section is that Gentiles, essentially, creation is sufficient for every human being on the face of the earth to know that God exists. And to deny that and suppress that is sufficient grounds for God to judge humanity. He then goes on, which I'm not going to cover in detail, in 2 and 3... And he asks the question, well, what about the Jews? If Gentiles don't have God's word and are simply relying upon creation to see who God is, what about the Jews who do have God's word and God's law? And he says, actually, this makes things go from bad to worse. When you have God's law, it's now explicit what you are doing wrong. You should know better than anyone else what you ought not to do. And law, rather than actually being a means where we can justify ourselves, actually is the means through which God further convicts us of our sins. The more explicit God is about his holiness, the worse our condition gets by comparison. 
So if you're hoping this morning that by works of the law you can justify yourself, Paul makes clear that simply is not the case. So by the time we arrive at 3, 9 through 20, Paul has made his case in full. Condemnation rests upon all of humanity, whether it be the irreligious person whom God has made clear that he is God through creation, or the religious person who thinks because they know the law, therefore they are righteous before the law. Either one, Paul says, are actually condemned and convicted and are under the wrath of God because of their sin. So Paul ends this section with God's verdict against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of mankind. Point number three... The verdict. Paul gives his verdict in 3.9 where it says this. What then? Are Jews any better off because they have the law? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Paul then goes on to summarize our condition. And I want you to look at this carefully with me starting in verse 10. And I want you to note the absolute and exclusive language used. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All of mankind, Jew, Greek, slave, free, men, women, you, me, all are among the ungodly and the unrighteous and must therefore face the wrath of God revealed from heaven against us. God's attributes reveal who he is. God's law written on our heart. God's law written in his word. All are sufficient. All hold us to account and all cause us to stop our mouths because we realize there is simply no defense that we can offer. The reality is that we need a righteousness apart from the law. We need a savior and it's only when we grasp the depth of our sin that God's, and God's wrath against our sin and our utter helplessness to remedy that condition that we begin to truly understand what Christ has done for us. It's only in light of the bad news that God's grace becomes truly amazing to us. When we grasp our desperate condition, how sick we truly are, the sickness of sin that is terminal, that places us under the wrath of God, it's only then when we grasp these things that we can truly understand what we have been saved from and therefore love the Savior who has given himself for us. It's only in light of the bad news that what Paul says in 1.16 becomes a good news for us. For I am not ashamed of what the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. If you are here this morning and you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, consider what I have said. That before God, he has declared you a sinner, that you are under his judgment, and that one day you will face the wrath 
of God. Contrary to what our culture says, we are not innately good. We are not innately able to please God. Our good works can never outweigh our bad. And God will not take our intentions to heart. That is not what will save us. When you stand before God, you will either be standing in the righteousness of Christ or you will be standing in your own sin and therefore liable to God's judgment. I recognize that for some of you this morning, I am a doctor giving you very bad news. I'm telling you that you have a sickness that is terminal, but I'm also giving you the good news that there is a remedy in Jesus Christ. The sin that you have committed was laid upon Christ and he paid for it in full. He paid for every last sin, every last ordinary sin, so that you and I would not have to face the death and judgment that are deserved for our sins. You have a way of escape. If you are here this morning and under sin and under the wrath of God, you can turn to Christ in faith, who lived for you and died for you and rose for you so that you might be freed from the wrath of God. For Christ satisfied that wrath. The wrath that was aimed at you was then pointed at him and he drank down every last drop of the cup of wrath that the Father offered him. He did so so that you might not face it, that you might know forgiveness and eternal life. Come to Christ this morning. You do not have to remain under the wrath of God. For those of us who have already come to Christ, may we never forget our condition prior to Christ. It is so easy for us to talk about Christ so easy, so flippantly. To become familiar with the ordinary sins. Well, yeah, Christ paid for the big ones, but the gossip and the slander and the envy and the covetousness and the arrogance and the boasting, he had to pay for all of them. Recognizing what Christ has done, our condition, it makes us take sin more seriously. Jesus had to die to pay for those, each and every one of them. It also should amaze us that Christ did this freely for us when we were his enemies, when we rejected him, when we were rebels. He gave himself for us so that we would not face the wrath of God. Friends, the gospel is truly the power of God unto salvation. It is good news that should lead us to rejoice and make us happier than anything else in this life. Yes, it is bad news. But it is bad news that leads us to the great and unbelievable and immense good news that Christ has paid for our sins so that we will not face the wrath of God. Friends, may we revel in the good news of Christ this morning as we sing his praises and in a moment as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let me pray for us. Father, I know that there are people here this morning who do not know you, have not submitted to you, and are therefore facing your judgment. And Father, my feeble words are insufficient to help them grasp the immensity of what it is that they face. And I pray that where my words fail, that your word in scripture and the power of your spirit would make plain to them that they indeed face a terrible wrath that is coming, and yet you offer them freedom and forgiveness. May they come to you this morning, repenting of their sins and trusting in Christ for salvation. And Father, I pray that as a people, we would not shy away from our sinfulness and from your wrath, because 
in acknowledging both of those things. Father, you make a way for Christ to be glorious. May Christ be exalted as we consider what we have been saved from and what he has done for us. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.